Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors through in-depth interviews about their work, their life, and their inspiration. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more book recommendations and author interviews. Also, follow Day Beautiful on all social media, at Day Beautiful, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Wherever you want to find us, you can. Today's guest was born in Korea and moved to Portland, Oregon at the age of nine. She is a graduate from Princeton University with a degree in art and archaeology and a certificate in French. Her writing has appeared in Granta, Slice, Catapult, Times Literary Supplement, Joyland, and many, many more publications. Her debut novel, Beast of a Little Land, is out now. I'm, of course, talking about the amazing Juhei Kim. Hey, Juhei, how you doing? Thank you. And um, it's such an exciting and at the same time, um, a nerve wracking, chaotic kind of time. And uh, everyone warned me that it will feel that way. (laughs) So um, I'm just trying to gain my sea legs and enjoy Mm -hmm. some moments in the process. Yeah. And and coming out in the holiday season when everything's already weird. And then it's also still a pandemic. So it's just wild times right now. Um, I want to start with your book, Beasts of a Little Land. That's why we're here to talk. And just, I like to get the author's point of view. What is this book about? What is the synopsis? Beasts of a Little Land is an epic story of love, war, and redemption set against the backdrop of the Korean independence movement. And as we begin the story, it's 1917, and we meet a hunter who is lost in the snowy mountains of Pyongan province, which is now in North Korea. And uh, he becomes rescued um, by a Japanese officer. Um, And they in turn encounter a mysterious tiger and from these three beings connecting unfolds a saga that that reverberates through two generations of characters over a half a century. And even though um, it's taking place against this epic backdrop and um, it has about a dozen major and minor characters in various parts of Korean society, uh, it also is at its heart a love story. Um, and it's a love story between three people. And so um, if you uh, are attracted to um, stories where you are really pulled in by compelling characters and unusual circumstances and mythic pro- proportions, and also an em- emotionally satisfying and cathartic ending, I think this book is for you. Definitely, yeah. And when I read it, I actually read it, I was back in, I think, July. I read it over the summer when I first got it. I was in Yellowstone and it was like, I was camping. It was beautiful. I read it over the weekend I was camping and I was just really drawn to, I mean, it's obviously this epic, like you said, multiple generations. It's just like, but the landscape, I I felt I was in Korea where I've never been, but it was just beautifully written. So thank you for writing this, this book that I think will open the door to people who just don't know much about Korea or Korean history. Uh, the nature part, the fact that you read in Yellowstone, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I haven't lived in Korea for a long time now, um, but uh, the nature part is such an important aspect of Korean culture. Um, we have such a huge uh, uh, respect and reverence toward nature and that really forms the 
a foundation of Korean thought. Mm. So I'm glad that you got to experience that surrounded by mountains. Oh yeah, it was beautiful. And and you mentioned how you haven't lived in Korea for a long time. You uh, were born in Korea, moved to Oregon when you were nine. Um, was Korea, a, uh, this may be a silly question, was that still a big part of your life or did your parents really focus more on like Americanizing you if that's appropriate or accurate to ask, sorry. Oh yeah, I think that's a great question. And uh, I was not Americanized as you can tell from my name, Juhei Kim. You know, I grew up in Portland in the 90s, and at that time, all the Korean immigrant kids changed their name to English names because they thought that it would help them with their careers and also socially. Um, my family gave it some thought, and uh, we played with the idea, but nothing really stuck, and we really decided to stick with our original names. And I'm really proud of that now because um, just within the last five years or so, Korean culture has really exploded around the globe uh, and it's become something cool. And um, uh, before then, though, it was something that you really had to live with like an albatross around your neck. So uh, me <laughs> resisting all the pressure to um, to change who I am uh, over the years and, and then finally being able to be rewarded for that. It's very satisfying, I have to say. Yeah, I, I think I just I haven't listened to the podcast, but I just saw your Instagram post about I think a question was brought up about like K-pop and K-culture. Um, so was Korean culture like even growing up, did, like did your um, like uh, friends from America, were they at all interested but, or were they just like, oh, you are different or whatever? Oh, my God. Uh, no, Korean culture was not something to be proud of. Um, I got made fun of a lot. And uh, it was, um, it was again, definitely a penalty. And I remember when I graduated in the nadir of the Great Recession in 2009, and I was sending out hundreds of resumes and with my name that everybody tells me is unpronounceable. I mean, I've had teachers tell me, I can't pronounce this, I'll just call you Julie, like for most of my life. And these were well-meaning people. I don't think that they had the kind of awareness that we do now, um, but they would call me Jew or Julie or just like make up something <laughs> or just say do. And so um, applying for jobs, that was, uh, you know, really traumatizing. And, um, you know, when I was working in publishing, I worked as an editorial assistant at a New York publisher from 2011 to 2014. I was watching all the books that were getting published and it was written by um, mostly, to be honest, like Brooklyn or New York living white people. And I saw a model for a publishing career that was very white driven and very um, East Coast driven. And I was none of those things. And um, on a subconscious level, I was really mimicking that because my first short story that got published by Granta and I'm very proud of it. I, I still stand by that story. It's one of my favorites. And um, I actually stand by everything I write. But the main protagonist in that story, her name is Claire, which is very white sounding. And it, it even means light. And so um, the fact that my big breakthrough um, is an epic novel based in Korea, filled with Korean names is something that I can now be proud of. It, it's it's actually unbelievable thinking about where things were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. When did you start, I guess, 
not trying to mimic white Brooklyn and LA in your writing? When I first started writing Beast. So um, my agent, uh, Jody Khan of Brandon Hoffman, I had just begun working with her almost exactly six years ago in November, 2015. And I had literally been published nowhere. This was before I, I debuted in, in Granta. And she said, you should write a novel because you know we want you to debut with a novel. And I was thinking about what can I really dedicate myself to? Like, what do I really believe in? And the thing that I wanted to throw myself into was a story about Korea at this time, because this was a story um, based on what I heard about my grandfather growing up. Um, and it's kind of a hidden secret family history about how my maternal grandfather was likely a messenger for the independence movement, which um, it, it comes with its own set of trauma because independence fighters were often not rewarded. They were actually oppressed even after independence. There, there was a lot of political upheaval as you can see from the book, Adam. So um, I wanted to dive into that. And uh, what's really rewarding for me now that the book is out is that honestly, my mom's been reading it and she has said that this is amazing. And I was really worried about her feedback because um, you know she understands that the seed of this novel came from her father's story. And so it's really important for me to get her approval and she is giving it to me. So um, yeah. it's the best compliment. Did she read much of it prior to it being published or did, was she left out of, of the loop? Oh, I, I totally left her out of the process. And um, I think a lot of authors do leave their moms out of the process for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Because when I was reading it, it's, I mean, I. I obviously don't think when I read books that are about the author, but usually with debut novelists, there's some things you're pulling from history within your family of some sorts. Um, so I was thinking about that if they, if your family had read it. So now your mom has read it. Has, have other family members read it now that it's out? And what's, what's um, their response? I think it's really just going to happen more slowly because as much as I would love them to stay up all night reading it, I think it's going to just trickle in. Um, I'm really, I'm really proud of my mom for reading this in English. I do have a Korean edition that's coming out in 2022. Um, Beast of a Little Land, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that so far it's being published in nine countries, including the US and, uh, you know, uh, Russia, Italy, France, Korea, um, Brazil, uh, US, UK, Australia. Um, I think I got everything in there. Um, but uh, yeah, so they're they're not reading it in Korean. They're gonna try to read it in English. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. With, with it coming out in Korean, you you did you you didn't write the Korean version? Is it being translated? Like, right? It's not you who wrote it, right? It's exactly right. Um, someone is translating it, and I read a partial of the translation which was so beautiful. I have experience translating between English and Korean. And um, I don't think I would ever do that for my own book. I'm not Jhumpa Lahiri. <laughs> That's not my thing. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, I was curious. And then, so you read a little bit about it. Is and I don't know much. I'm not a linguist. I took Spanish in high school. I don't understand language at all. Is it difficult to translate from English to Korean? Like, are things untranslatable in these two languages? 
No, okay. things are translatable. <laughs> cool. Okay. Yeah. I just know like sometimes there's some phrases or, or, or examples where it's difficult to translate from certain languages to others. And I was just curious. I don't know much about Korean. I mean, I, I, Korea or Korean culture. It's interesting. Like now I do, I feel because of like you, we talked about at the top, this new love of K culture. Um, it, it's opening the world. This book you you kind of alluded to this why a historical saga as opposed to like something modern and like set in current korea oh my goodness a great question i could not write something that is set in um present day korea because i don't live in present day korea and their concerns um are different um basically than my concerns if you notice the current wave of korean literature that's being translated it deals a lot with the pressures and ills of a highly modernized highly digitized and competitive society um they're dealing with issues of density you know parasite there's no housing for the poor or the working class. And it's like, you know, really bad conditions, the high disparity in wealth and privilege um, and uh, patriarchy, patriarchy, even in a very advanced society. So it's doubly um, oppressive. And uh, these are some of the things that, are, that Koreans living in Korea are really, really um, interested in. And if you notice, um, uh, there is such a lack of nature um, or any anything natural in the current wave of Korean literature, I highly respect what they're doing. Um, it's very, very, it's very, very good. It's incredibly inspiring, but um, it, it's also evident that they're working in an environment that's different than mine. Me, I am interested in um, uh, more of a um, more universal and uh, timeless topics, you know, the love, the forgiveness, redemption, um, justice, but it, in a more uh, timeless scale as opposed to what's happening right now in 2021. So um, I think that that's also possible because I'm living here. And also one of the things that I'm concerned with um, as an America, American residing author is uh, what role did the U.S. play in the geopolitics in Asia that still continues to reverberate today? And you can sense that in, in beasts. And uh, I wanted to dive into that probably in ways that uh, Koreans living in Korea are less concerned about. And part of, I think I read this summer in an interview you have done about research. I mean, I know there's like part of your, family history is woven into it in some ways. What was research like for you? Because I know in that interview I had read it, you talked a lot about like, it was important, but what was it like for you? Uh, interview felt very natural. Um, and I don't want to say easy, but it didn't feel um, like something difficult or something that I had to like really, um, you know, beat my head against the wall for. Uh, and in large part because I am a fluent Korean speaker and reader um, and like the first hand sources were just all over the place available to me just from books to online sources to music to um, movies. I read a lot of literature from that time and um, it, it, it's inspiring on an artistic level, not just on a history level. And, um, you know, 
all those things informed me and um, made this book possible. And then one thing I, like you mentioned, it, it's a the love story between three people. Um, how did that develop into this history? What, did it come naturally? Did it surprise you? Or was it kind of a conscious effort that that was going to be like interwoven throughout the story? You know, Adam, I, I have said this before somewhere too, and I'll say this again. Uh, I don't know why this is, but I am such an intuitive writer. Um, I am the writer who really like gets visited by a muse or like gets struck by lightning. It, it is really an important part of my process. And um, I also uh, have to put myself sometimes in that condition for me to receive the inspiration. And I have a method for doing that, but really like uh, I open myself up and it just like enters my head. So the love story between three people that also just came to me as weird as that might sound, like sounds almost shamanistic. Um, but uh, yeah, and a lot of the plot, um, very uh, many anchor scenes, the scenes that were most important to me, the beginning, the end, um, yeah. some of the penultimate chapters came all at the very, very beginning, like literally right when I started um, envisioning this book, the characters came like almost immediately. That wasn't the hard part. Um, the hard part was, um, you know, uh, filling in the blanks because I'm a debut novelist and I took a big bite. I, I didn't know how much of a big bite because, um, you know, if I could go back, I would advise myself, why don't you try something more simple like first person narrative for your debut and then you can take this on for your next book. But I thought that I could do it because I had read these types of books before. So, um, the hard part was being patient because if I had taken more time to just be patient, I would have revised less, but I was also working a full-time job as an editor in New York the whole time I was writing this. And um, I was writing this between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. I mean, I'd be sitting on the subway squished between people like riding down the train to um, Soho from my place in Inwood and like typing on my iPhone. And that was the novel. If you can imagine that book coming from an iPhone typing session, like sleepy because you're living all the way uptown because uh -huh. um, you can't afford to live downtown. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and you mentioned you, you started writing this about six years ago once you connected with your agent who kind of pushed it. So yeah, my next question was going to be about the writing process. So on subways, on your iPhone, what was, and, and, and things came to you naturally, I guess, what was, you, you already kind of said this, what was the hardest part though? Now, other than filling in the blanks, like, did you, did you understand like the tone you wanted? What, what kind of, if, if you're intuitive, what didn't come oh, naturally? Yeah. Oh yes, I'm, I'm happy to disclose. Um, I, and it's really the craft aspect because I didn't go to an MFA pro program nor did I ever take creative writing classes in college. I took exactly one English lit class in college and in the first semester of my freshman year um, on Henry James and William Faulkner. <laughs> but I did no creative writing. It didn't work for a literary magazine. You see what I'm trying to say here? Because I realized when I went to public uh, work for a publisher, I looked around myself and all around me were these kids that worked for the same literary magazine at Harvard. 
It, it's a very exclusive community. Um, it's a funnel. And they all did Columbia Publishing, and which I did not even know existed. So um, on a craft level, so A, the hard part, I, I did come into it with a sort of naivete. And B, on a craft level, um, I'm trying to write uh, from multiple points of view. And uh, I just needed to go deeper and deeper and close just inside somebody's skin and not try to uh, jump around too much or like stay a little bit floating above because um, I, I had the desire to kind of be um, a little bit above everyone's heads. But, you know, fortunately, my agent and editor who are both brilliant were like, no, 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 really just get inside their skins and tell us what it feels like to be that person in that moment. I mean, I was already doing that a lot, but what I didn't know was that I needed to do more of that. And um, if you can imagine trying to tell a 50-year-old story, a 50-year story, but being in like people's skins the whole time, it, it does require some level of skill not to, um, you know, <laughs> you, you need to be able to distribute things, allocate things in a wise way. <laughs> so that was the challenge. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you mentioned something, not to switch subjects completely, but you mentioned, you know, you weren't from the New York MFA world and, and it's, it's, it, it is its own bubble really. And then writers like you breaking into the industry is completely different. What made you originally go become like an editorial assistant? Why did you choose that path if this wasn't kind of what you were doing and like the, with MFAs and whatnot. Are, are we going to get real? Are we really going to get you, Can you get real? I'm it. Cause like I tell people, <laughs> I, I fell ass backwards into like the literary scene. I don't write fiction. I just like to talk to people. And I used to write about music. And then oh, one day um, I was at a music, I was working for a music magazine and a book was sent to me by accident instead of a book, uh, the book editor. And I was like, maybe I could like trick people into letting me interview them. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, if you want to get real, what was the story? I'm, I'm really right. interested. So the realness is coming out. Um, I, uh, I didn't grow up with a lot of wealth by any means. Um, it, it was kind of a difficult childhood and adolescence that I had in Portland. Um, in fact, I almost didn't get a chance to go to college, but by, by um, you know, luck and grace and all those things, I got an opportunity to go to Princeton. So um, I got there and I thought, I wanna study art history. Um, I wanna work for a museum because I always had such a longing for the arts, but I didn't think that I could be an artist um, in my own way. Um, and, you know, Princeton has a really renowned creative writing program. It never even would have occurred to me in those circumstances to give myself permission to write and take myself seriously. Um, and I will say that, you know, kids who are 18 or 19 and they have the audacity to say, I wanna study creative writing and become an author, to have that level of confidence in your late teens, it, it does, um, it is possible because of a lot of privilege. So um, I, from our history and the museum thing, I, I went into fashion because, um, you know, it's also visual arts. And um, after a, a couple years in fashion, I realized I'm not really obsessed with fashion. I, I enjoy the creative process, the fabrics, the colors, um, the inspiration and like the craft. The creative process really thrilled me, but I was not a fashion animal. Um, and how I realized this was, you know, Something that you're obsessed with is something that you wake up and you go to bed thinking about. 
And when my eyes opened in the morning, I wasn't obsessing about fashion at all. When my eyes closed at night, I wasn't obsessing about fashion. But what I was really into was books. Um, I loved books. I loved writing. I loved reading. And instead of going to fashion stores, I found myself going to bookstores um, to recharge. So um, I had come to this crossroads. And one day I saw um, an email from Princeton alumni mailing list advertising for um, an assistant position at Knopf. So um, I applied and, you know, <laughs> they always tell you this probably, but they're like, yeah, like 500 other people applied. So you should really be grateful that you've got this job. <laughs> so from that point on, you know, I got, in, I got um, matriculated into the system, but before then I wasn't a part of that system at all. I, I did feel like an outsider um, that whole time that I was there. Uh, in a lot of ways, I still feel like an outsider um, because all the, of all those reasons, I didn't go to Iowa, you know, <laughs> et cetera. You're back in Portland. Uh, your debut novel is out. Are you, I, I don't have this written down. Are you, are you still in the publishing world? Are you still full-time doing something outside oh, of no, writing? Oh, no, this is my job. Uh, being a full-time author is my job and it sounds cushy and I don't know how I got here, but so it is. <laughs> <laughs> well that's terrific yeah I just wanted to see if, uh, if you're still in the publishing world I'll, I'll wrap up because I know your time is valuable it's your debut week this this podcast will come out slightly later you're doing so many events um, I was, I'm curious what are you reading what's what's on the horizon maybe that you want to read what's uh, been inspiring you lately sure um, I, I'll start with some of the books that I have recently read and mm -hmm. Adored. Um, I read uh, The Prince of Mournful Thoughts by Caroline Kim and uh, recently, and she was, uh, three of these books that I will mention now, uh, they are my conversation partners, so they are my friends, but before mm -hmm. we were friends, I read this and um, I was so amazed because it's not from a big five, um, but I was just like, why isn't this, why wasn't this published by a major publisher? Um, it is so beautiful and ethereal and real in a way um, that I actually am very different from because I'm a very full-blooded uh, author as you can probably sense from my book mm -hmm. Adam. Um, mm -hmm. she does something very different but something that I deeply deeply admire um, with a little lighter and so more subtle touch and I just want to emulate that. <laughs> Um, Yun Choi, her debut collection, Skinship, came out to great acclaim in August, and she's another author who, um, again, a rather different sensibility, you know, short stories are a little bit more intimate um, in scope and um, in terms of tone, but I was just really mesmerized, and The Family, Naomi Krupitsky's uh, New York Times bestselling uh, debut that just came out in November. And what I loved about her was how intimately she portrays the, um, the minds of, of women from all of their life stages. And um, the romance that was pictured was really, really real. And I'm gonna mention just a couple of classics um, in the past year, I finally, finally read The Master and Margarita, which, mm. you know, it's not something that just came out. I'm probably very deeply uncool for admitting that I only read it in the past year, but it blew my mind away. And I was like, how, how did he land that plane? That was crazy because, 
you know, it's pretty wild. And it, it, and he carried it through. And um, I always say Anna Karenina is the perfect novel, but I think that uh, Master Margarita is probably a less perfect novel, but it might be a more perfect work of art. Um, I have I have many of these classic suggestions and even like world literature. Um, I, I read a lot of translated um, literature from like everything from the uh, Par Lagerkvist, um, who I think is Danish. I read a lot of the French, um, Marcel Aimé. Uh, I read even sometimes uh, Japanese authors like Fukusawa Shichiro. Um, of course, I read a lot of Koreans. Um, a Korean working in Korea uh, that I really admire is Kim Eran. And I've plugged her in before because I really think that she's kind of a brilliant, brilliant talent. And her book, um, My Brilliant Life, was translated into English pretty recently and to great acclaim. I want to thank Juhei Kim for all of those book recommendations and keeping it real on the podcast. This was a super fun chat, and I am so stoked that people are getting to see how beautiful Beast of a Little Land is and how amazing Juhei Kim's writing is. You can find her at juheikim.com. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and at daybeautiful on all social media. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. <laughs>